This is Life Admin Life Hacks, a podcast that gives you techniques, tips, and tools to tackle your life admin more efficiently, to save your time, your money, and improve your household harmony. I'm Mia Northrop, a researcher and writer who has bought four different properties over the last 20 years, and every experience was completely different. This episode, I interview Carol Robertson, real estate veteran, all about buying property with buyer and seller advocates. Hello, and welcome to Life Admin Life Hacks. This is a solo episode today without my lovely partner in Life Admin, Dinah Rowe Roberts. And I talked to Carol Robertson, who revealed how buyers advocates save time, money, and stress, and help you secure the property you want at the price you can afford how doing your research on the floor plan, property, street, and neighborhood is essential to be confident that it all works for you, and the crucial steps you need to take to prepare yourself to buy. If you're in the market to buy or sell, or curious about how advocates work with agents, this app's for you. Before we jump into the details of this episode, we wanted to let you know that if your digital files and documents are in disarray, and it stresses you out because you can't find anything, then we have a solution that might be a little bit life-changing. We've created an instant filing system for home, which is a drag and drop template that applies a folder structure to your Google Drive, Microsoft OneDrive, or computer files. It has 11 top-level folders for your main life admin categories, then 40 subfolders for statements, bills, contracts, policies, receipts, all the stuff which you can customize for your household. If you've struggled to have a folder structure that makes sense, or you're just relying on the search functionality to find anything, then you're going to love how much time the instant filing system saves you to set up, maintain, and use your documents. Head to lifeadminlifehacks.com forward slash resources to learn more. Carol Robertson is a buyer and seller advocate, a licensed estate agent, and a member of the Real Estate Institute of Victoria, with over two decades of experience helping clients buy or sell their homes. Specialising in her clients' homes rather than property investment ensures she has time to focus on them and their needs and everything they need help with as they transition their home. Carol provides valuable insights and guidance for her clients to make informed, independent decisions about their next home and selling their current one. She's dedicated to providing exceptional service and making the buying and selling process seamless and stress-free for her clients. She's passionate about reducing the overwhelm, and helping clients achieve control over their housing decisions, building stability for themselves without facing discrimination in the real estate industry. Carol, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's absolutely a pleasure. We've had so many requests from our Instagram and Facebook followers to do an episode on property. And Diana and I were wondering, like, how do we come at this topic? There's so many dimensions to it. And we've met a couple of times now, and I learned that she'd worked in property for more than 20 years and know it upside down and back to front. And I thought, (laughs) there's no more perfect person to introduce to our listeners and answer their questions. So welcome, welcome, welcome. So we have a global audience, and property is by its nature something that's very location-specific, but we wanted to look at some trends and influences that play out at each level. And obviously, there are probably some principles and steps to buying and selling that are pretty similar wherever you are. So we're curious to explore it all. But I'm wondering to start off with, how has the current economic climate affected the real estate market here? So we're kind of teetering on recession right now. What are you seeing in the market? Real estate is very much a supply and demand industry. When there is market uncertainty and so people wonder, is it a good time to sell? Is it a good time to buy? 
And that sort of seems to go across the board, whether they're first home buyers or downsizers. And we're sort of hesitant because like anything with real estate, you've got to know where you want to go. And if you're a downsizer, you want to know that what you sell the house for, you're going to have some money left over because realistically our equity in our homes is, well, it's the biggest asset that we have generally. Mm. And a lot of downsizers, particularly earlier baby boomers, didn't have super and don't have much super. So all they have is equity. But market uncertainty is certainly impacting on the sellers. So a lot of our listeners are probably, you know, we've got lots of millennials and Gen Xers listening. Various of the, of the other ends of the extreme. So they'd rather be first-time buyers or they might be looking to upgrade their house because their kids are getting bigger and they, they need more room. They might want more family living space. Are they essentially waiting for the downsizers to sell their big family homes and move to an apartment in the Docklands or something before the stock becomes, you know, the, to create that stock. Is that what you're saying? It becomes really hard for first home buyers. Like ageism exists at both ends of the market. So for, from a first home buyer's perspective, from a real estate agent's, when you're looking at first home buyers, my biggest recommendation for them is to get their money sorted before they even look where they want to go or anything. Get their money sorted because... The way the real estate market is now, agents are going to encourage you to go unconditional. So it's not subject to finance. It's not subject to a building or a pest inspection. Auctions are unconditional contracts. It means that the house is pretty much sold. If you buy at auction, then the house is sold. If you buy at a private sale, you get calling off. The buyer gets three clear business days to call off, to change their minds. They will lose 0.2% of their initial deposit, but they do get the chance to call off. So unconditional is what agents want because then it's done. Okay. So they want you to have all your financing sorted out. So what are the steps to get that financing sorted out? What do you need from the bank? From a bank's perspective, and I must note that real estate agents are not allowed to give financial advice. Mm. Any agent that does give you financial advice Go and do your own research. I know when I was talking about this with my daughter, who is a first home buyer, mm. I told her she had to curtail her shopping at Kmart to stop going out and buying alcohol and clothes and all the rest of it. Mm. Depending on the lenders, they will look at, at some stage, they were looking at six months of what you were spending money on and then they bring it into three. But you need to be secure in the knowledge that you can pay the money back because that's really all a bank cares about is that you are going to repay them on time, all the time. So you've got some kind of loan approval letter from the bank essentially saying you are good for this much money. Yeah, that's a pre-approval. Yeah. My recommendation to my first home buyers is to say to their lender, whether it's through a mortgage broker or their bank direct, if they wanted to bid at auction, could they? Because if you're a first home buyer, really, they will make you make it subject to finance. It's a safeguard for the bank because if you are going to go buying and the agent's pretty hard on you and you overpay, if it's subject to finance, you can get out of the contract. Unless you're buying at auction, you can make every contract subject to finance if it's private sale. But that's one of my first criteria with my advocacy clients is first of all, I want to know their why. I want to know their mindset, you know, what's leading them down this path. But the second thing is their money. 
They really need to have thought about what their money is, at what point they are in the finance approval stakes. If someone says to me, oh, we haven't thought about that yet, well, I'm not taking them on as a client because it's they can't do anything. Yeah, of course. Unless unless it's an inheritance or something. Yeah. And it has to be money in their bank because if you're waiting on an inheritance again, that can take time to actually filter into your bank account. Yeah. And so what do you mean by their mindset? Like what kind of questions? What do you what do you need to know? Is it simply is this for you as a residence or is it a property or is it more than that? Yeah. What do you want what do you want to do? Okay, you want to buy a house. Why do you want to buy a house? Do you want it as a property investment? Do you, how long do you see yourself living there? You know, because that gets to longevity. Are you intending for this to be your forever home? It never is. I'll give you the hot tip. It's never your forever home. Why do you want to live there? What do you want in your, your, your property? And then it gets, you know, it does get into, I have three lists. I have a, a, a want list. Write down your want list and I give you guidance on that. Then we look at, okay, what do you need? And then I get into, okay, I, it has to have this. Mm. And if it doesn't have it, then you're not buying the property. There's a little bit of flexibility with it, but I really want my clients to have thought about the home that they want. Yeah, You know, I've got clients at the moment that uh, they have a house provided for them with their job, but they want to buy something that they will move into. And that becomes an interesting question because, you know, if they're going to rent it out in the interim, are they looking for capital growth? You know, do they want it to increase fairly well in value over time or do they want the rent to help them pay the mortgage in the interim? Do they want both because everyone always wants both? What's what's their intention? Because often when people buy a house saying that they're going to live in it in 10, 15 years' time, well, the area can change. Yeah, so Their many- needs can change. Yeah, so much can change. So knowing their motivation, knowing their why is to me really important. I have clients that say, oh, well, I want the kids to be closer to school. Well, how old are the kids? Because if they're in their teens, are you going to buy a house that's really a a long-term proposition for kids that are going to be in it for five years? If the kids actually ever leave home. but (laughs) It's going to be the opposite problem these days, Carol. Yeah. They never leave. But it's like, oh, it must be fully renovated because that's the big thing. People want things to be fully renovated. Personally, I would rather my house was unrenovated because I'll do a building and pest inspection on it, uncover any little problems or anything, Mm. and then I'll do it myself because so many people have watched renovation shows and who's done the reno? So you mentioned building inspection, pest inspection. How essential are those? So it depends on the house. If you're going to buy a an old character weatherboard that's over 100 years old, mm. it's not going to comply with current building regs. So get that out of your head immediately. But what the building and pest will detect is if there's any major issues. A building inspection is usually subject to a major defect. A major defect is something like stumps or the roof, the Mm. the real structure of the house. If there's three window winders that don't work, that is not a major structural defect. If I'm buying a house, I want to know that it's solid. But if it's not, I I want to know that because then I can factor in the cost of re-stumping or doing you know, those sorts of repairs. A pest inspection, what we're really looking for is termites, that T word that terrifies real estate agents because it puts the 
absolute sealer on many sales. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay, so if the property is over a certain age, it's in your best interest to have those pest inspection, building inspection carried out to make sure it's structurally sound, that you haven't got the terrible termites in there. If you do find issues, then I guess you have a choice about whether that changes what you're prepared to offer or whether you can be bothered going through whatever repairs or remediation is required at all. Yeah, it's a building and pest inspection. If the house is on stumps, I would get a building and pest inspection because even if it's on concrete stumps, you don't know how old the concrete stumps are. It's just a safeguard. Agents will try and talk first home buyers, everybody out of the inspections because it's, you know, they can. The market is such. We're in what we would call, I think, look, I think to a degree we're still in a a seller's market. A seller's market is when there are more buyers than there are sellers. Because there's been such low stock levels, there are more buyers. A lot of people are trying to buy because it's um, easier than getting a rental. You know, sometimes it's more affordable than a rental. Yeah. And so at what stage of the buying process should you get that inspection done? Say, you know, if there's if you're going to auction, you need to have that, have that done and seen the results before the auction so you can know what you're if you're happy to bid at all or what you're happy to bid to. And I guess if it's a private sale, you can get the reports done in your cooling off period if it's private sale, okay. bearing in mind that you will if you do cool off, you'll lose that money, but Yeah. And if you're a seller, does it make sense I actually recommend to my clients that they get them done before we hit the market Yeah. Um, because I want to know, and I will do that with my own house, I want to know what's likely, it's not guaranteed, I want to know what's likely to come up in the reports because it might be something that I'm not aware of and I can fix it and I haven't gone, I haven't wasted my marketing campaign time when I've got to fix something. Yeah. And then do you disclose those reports to the buyer? It, I guess if you fixed it, possibly not. There's, it depends what it is. There's a lot in real estate that depends. Yeah. There's things that we do have to disclose. We have a material facts disclosure thing now. Mm. And if the agent is aware, you know, there used to be caveat emptor, buyer beware, but it's not so much that now with material facts. When you said that material facts, you know where my brain went to like if someone died in the house or if it's yeah. haunted or something. Absolutely. That, is that the kind of thing? Yeah. Usually with the the dying, it's usually violent yeah. that people want to know because realistically once a house is a certain age, quite likely that somebody yeah. at some point has died in it. Yeah. And um, you want to know, you know, I ask, has anyone done a building and pest inspection on it? Mm-hmm. And if the agent says, oh, yes, okay, can I see the reports? Sometimes I can bully them into giving me the reports. I know, that's my job. And sometimes we can buy the reports. Yeah. And you mentioned that, you know, in Victoria here we're sort of still in a seller's market. What does that mean for buyers? Are there specific strategies they should consider when the market's competitive like this? Know their money. Do their research. I mean, research to me is one of the most important things that buyers don't do enough of. We're getting better. You've probably got about 10 points of when you're doing your research that people look at the buy component on the real estate portals. They should be looking at the sold components. When you're researching, so when I'm researching for a client, I'm looking at, okay, what's currently on the market? When we're selling a house, these days we have a thing called the agent's estimated price, the statement of information, and that should list houses that were used to get the price that we're putting it on the market for. So have a look at what's on the market. 
go in your price range a little bit lower and higher and have a look at what's on the statement of information or the agent's estimated selling price. Look at those homes. Is it genuinely a comparable or is it, you know, is it as much the same as the house you're looking at or are they just fluffing the figures? Mm. Often a lot of agents will leave the SOI blank and that's, you know, I'm happy to ask an agent, how did you get the price? Because sometimes they're beyond my fathoming and I've been doing a lot of research on it. So have a look at those and then keep your eye on the market. Don't go and buy in the first two weeks. You know, the bank said, okay, you can have a million dollars. Don't go and blow your million dollars in the first two weeks unless you've already been researching. So you're looking at homes that are on the market and then you're looking at what they've sold for and you will start to build up a profile of each agent and each agency. Some agents will always quote low. Most agents will quote low. They do that to increase competition. I've just been researching for a new listing that I've got coming on and I'm gobsmacked at the underquoting that's happening. It's frustrating. It's unfortunately part so entrenched in the industry and buyers unfortunately now expect that. So if you offer a price, say the house is on the market for $700,000, buyers automatically take that to say $750,000, $740,000, $750,000 and upwards. So if you're a genuine seller and you want $700,000, then you're not going to attract the right buyer. It's a huge, I think it's a huge flaw Mm. in the system. But when you're researching, so you want to look at houses that are a similar age, a similar construction, a similar size, similar condition, and you really want to also look at the land size and the Mm. composition of the land because, you know, if you're looking in regional areas, if you're looking in the peninsula or Dandenong Ranges or out the other side of Melbourne, then you can have an acre. But if it's a steep acre, then the land usability Mm. is not as great. So there's a lot of different points. Yeah, and when you say you're looking at the size of the house, is that just the square metres or is it the fact that it's got three bedrooms and two bathrooms? I would look at the number of bedrooms and then I would look at the size. One of my first houses had, um, I think it was five bedrooms, but they were tiny. Yeah, exactly. And look at the floor plan. The floor plan's actually, I think it's price, location and floor plan that buyers look at first because if it's a two-bedroom home, and you need four bedrooms because you've got three kids, then can you reconfigure the floor plan because they might be two massive bedrooms, but adding on, extending, you're not going to do that overnight and it can be quite costly. So, Okay. And so, Carol, you sound like you're doing a lot of research on behalf of your buyers. So talk, talk to us more about what a buyer's advocate or a seller's advocate does and why might someone choose to hire one? So a buyer's advocate or a seller's advocate, we are independent. So when you buy a house through a real estate agent, the agent wants you to be on their side to a certain point because they want you to you you want them to know, like and love you so that when they when you go to sell, you will choose that agent. As an advocate, I have no vested interest, completely independent. And my job is to walk by their side and guide them through the process. And so when I'm researching for a client, I have a massive list, a massive checkpoint list that I work through, which is why my initial questions are so important. You have to 
go through every possibility, every eventuality, whether the property's in Melbourne or in regional Vic. Most most agents are only licensed to work in one particular state, so I'm licensed for Victoria. And when I'm selling, I help the, the seller work out what they need to do to their home before they do actually put it on the market. And then I go through an agent selection process. I'm not just going to choose the same agent every time because I like them. They, ha- I have to know that they're going to do the best for my client. You know, I choose an agent and they're actually going to be the one that is at the house because so many agents, they're, they're listing agents. So they list the house and you never see them again. Yeah. I really don't like that. If an agent's going to do that, then I want to meet the person that's going to be at the house. I'm not employing a newbie. I'm employing an agent that's usually got at least seven years' experience. If I employ that agent and then they give me someone who's been in the industry less than six months. Yeah, it's so interesting. I was just reflecting as we were saying that. So I bought this house that I'm in now a year ago and I bid at auction, six auctions I went to. I can't tell you, it was 18 months of just going to property inspections the whole time. It was so confusing seeing the paperwork, like the, the one pager or seeing the listing on the website and it'd be someone's name. And then you turn up at the house to inspect it. It's because someone completely different and you're getting emails from a, another person. It was just, yeah, it was really irritating. And some agents don't even contact you. Some contact you too much. My One of my biggest things and I sort of say to clients is get a separate when you're about to start looking get a separate email address we talk about having dedicated life admin email addresses to handle all of that stuff so this is a perfect example where you want all of that stuff going keeping that out of your personal email address that's great advice oh so okay so it sounds like an advocate you know do you do advocates get paid like a fixed fee it's obviously it's not nothing related to how much they they but you're buying or selling the house for it's unrelated there's no vested interest in terms of how much you're going to spend. And it sounds like you're saving so much time and bringing that extra level of quality to the process because you're either shortlisting agents or you're shortlisting properties to look at. It depends. Every advocate is is different. Mm. I prefer a flat fee because real estate is generally done on percentages. I personally want to know how much something's going to cost me. The buying part is a flat fee. But I have three different levels. Um, if people just want advice, they can book a time with me and it's paid up front and they can get me for 30 minutes and they can ask me just about anything real estate related. And I have PDFs that they can just download that might help. And when you're selling, we tend to share the commission. We, sh- you know, we The agent that we select agrees that we share the commission. The selling agent actually gets the greater proportion of that. Not all advocates do that. Okay. Some of them are up to 50%, which are my own thoughts on that. Sometimes when you are when you employ an advocate, it's not necessarily about the money that you pay, but it's securing the property mm. and all the research and everything that goes into it prior. I've had numerous clients who've paid well above even their original budget because they wanted the property because they could really see how it would work for them. It's not always about money. It's about the outcome the client is looking for. I've got clients that it's not about saving money. It's just that they both work full-time, high-stress jobs, and they just want the grief and the stress taken away from. They don't want it to be their problem. Yeah. It's my problem. Yeah. Yeah, this you know, real estate transactions can be very overwhelming. There are, it's we're talking about huge amounts of money, 
often talking about all sorts of regulatory requirements, you're dealing with financing, there's so much paperwork. I've got a list here of all the various paperwork you require. It's there's like in terms of the, we talk about the mental load, like buying or selling a property. And if you're selling your own property, just preparing that property for sale, there are so many steps and little jobs to, to get done. It is one of the most overwhelming. It's like a wedding, really. In terms of the scale, it can be just enormous. It's one of the highest stress activities that you can do you know for my house for example I've got a four pages of lists of things that we need to do to the house that's some repair stuff and even when you're getting your house ready you know you'll have agents who tell you to basically renovate the kitchen and the bathroom as I said before I would prefer a house that was unrenovated that's me I'm picky I want what I want And if you give me a bathroom that looks like I'm in a hotel room, I'm going to hate it. Mm. It's not a hotel room. It's my home. I think you have to not go halfway, but you have to think about, okay, how much money am I spending? How much money am I getting it back, going to get back? Or am I just making it easier for the real estate agent to sell? Yeah, renovated houses are easier to sell, but it might cost you, what, 30 grand? Yeah. I don't know too many people who have that money. Well, there's the money and there's also just the grief of it going through a little renovation. It is tense. It is tense. And I could tell you the volume of houses that I've sold, the owners have done all of this work and the buyers have had a skip waiting on settlement day and they've ripped a lot of it out. And you think, so I'm of the opinion that have it presented well, as sparkling clean, there's nothing worse than going into a dirty house and we all have different standards with that. So get professional cleaners in. Once you think the house is ready, after you've removed all your glamour shots and... People who are thinking of putting their property on the market soon, they're going to sell. What are your top things here, Carol? Get rid of your glamour shots, number one. Get them off the walls. Take away a lot of the personal stuff, particularly take... I'm paranoid, I recommend taking photos of kids away any identifiers you know like where they go to school that sort of thing anything that names owners Mm -hmm. it's private people shouldn't be looking at that stuff but I still want the house to have personality because you can have so many staged homes and they look like they're a staged home and then you don't know which house you're in yeah so let's talk about staged homes what is the line what is the criteria like you know what you just need to stage this home it's one thing if you're selling a property and you've all moved out and there's no furniture in it houses with furniture probably sell more readily than empty houses but if you've got if you've got your furniture in there they're like yeah this isn't quite up to speed we need you need to stage it what? sellers are so offended yeah. and i have clients who have got beautiful furniture and they were highly offended because their agent told them that they had to move all of their furniture out and stage it i look at it and i think yeah okay my furniture's not fantastic we've had kids dogs chaos I think be practical with your furniture. There are companies that you can get to come in and tell you what should stay and what should go and Mm. maybe they'll bring odd items of furniture in. I would do that. Is this sort of a symptom of like the Instagramification of everyone's houses and all the property shows and you have to be living in utter glamour? Is that what we're seeing? Can people look through that and just go, oh, look, this is... Some people can. I find with a lot of um, first-home buyers that they want perfection and they struggle to see past that, okay, they could go to Kmart and spend $250 and have 
that stuff or they bring their parents through and their parents are the, the harshest critics and you think, oh, hang on a second, tell me about your first house. And they say, oh, God, it was awful. It had this and think, well, okay, so for your kids to get into the property market, they're probably going to have to do what you did. They're not going to get perfection. It is about the Instagram, this um, I remember my first house or the first people I came in touch with that had staged their home and they came from Ivanhoe and that would have been back in 2005. And when they were talking about staging their house, that had not hit the Dandenong Ranges, didn't hit the Dandenong Ranges you know, quite a few years after that. And I was really surprised and I'm still surprised at how people feel that it's necessary. I think if you've got clear lines of sight when you walk into a room so that you can, there's no clutter to impede your outlook, no junk, no personal stuff, then you can actually see the size of the room. People find it hard to visualise the size of the rooms. It's why vacant houses are better staged. Okay. So it's getting a better sense of the size of the room. Yeah. Not so much you know, how you might use a room. You're decluttering, you're getting rid of any signs of the kids and identifiers for your family. And you are clean, 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 clean. Your dog and your cat stuff is not in the house. And please get rid of your kitty litter. Oh, yeah, okay. Or at least clean your kitty litter. You have to have the landscapers through and get the fresh mulch. And uh, Look, I must admit, a good, clean deck is lovely. <laughs> and landscaping, it depends what the best features of the property are. Like if you have a smaller property, then being able to not see the fence line but get an idea of the actual perspective of the size of the property, you're just trying to sell the lifestyle. You know, really if it's an apartment or it's a five-acre property, you're just trying to sell the lifestyle. You want buyers to think this is easy to maintain. Do sellers and advocates help people find, if you need, you know, a handy person to come over a landscape, do they help find those people? Yeah, we have lists of different trades. Often a handyman can do a lot of the things, but if it's anything to do with plumbing or electrical, pay for a plumber, pay for a sparky. If you're going to build something, you have to be cautious with that, even replacing a deck. The most important people that you can have on your side is your conveyancer. Answer them truthfully. When they give you paperwork, do it, finish it, keep it somewhere safe, but action it straight away. Don't say I'll get to that later because we can't sell a house without a Section 32. So the paperwork from a conveyancer is really important. So I don't know if we explain what a Section 32 is. Could you explain that and what kind of, what do you mean about being truthful to the conveyancer? Is this, we put up that carport and we just did it on the weekend ourselves after a bunny trip versus... Yes, you know, if you lean on it, it's going to fall over. So a conveyancer handles all of the legal elements of buying or selling a property. When you sell a property, you need a Section 32. It's the Section 32 of the Sale of Land Act. It's a disclosure document. It won't necessarily tell you much about the house. It is all really about the land. So it'll tell you whether there's any easements, any covenants, any caveats, what services are connected. It'll go through a whole gamut of things. If you're buying and it says it's got a lease document in it, it's probably tenanted. Is it a state-level document or is it Australian? It's all state. Everything differs. Victoria is, I think, is the only one that actually has a statement, the Section 32. Some of them don't have anything, which 
absolutely bamboozles me. But you have to, in Victoria, you have to cite that. It get Make sure that your conveyancer, ask your conveyancer if they will actually have a read-through of that document before you sign yeah. a contract. And you know, getting into contracts is a whole other world. Yes, you have to read the contract, but you're not expected to actually know all the ins and outs. But whatever information you've given the agent, which will be your full name, which is your first name, any second names and your surname, anything that is filled in, such as the price, the deposit, settlement dates, special conditions, they're the main things that an agent can insert into a contract. If there's other random clauses um, that are filled in, make sure your conveyancer sees it before you sign it. That's why your conveyancer. Your conveyancer, your broker, get your house insured as soon as you've bought it and not when you've settled as soon as you've bought it. With each mm. stage, there's different people that are involved in the transaction. And does a buyer's advocate stick with you right through till settlement? Like when is obviously active right through the, the purchase process, but they're helping coordinate those people as well? Are they involved in that? Yeah, I mm. do. I come from a couple of decades of being a real estate agent, so how I do it might be different to other mm. advocates. You know, I'm there until probably after settlement. I have a, a list of emails that I send to you so that nothing should come as a surprise. You can think, oh, God, that's right. Yeah, Carol mentioned that. What sort of order things will happen in? Because I think that's the hardest thing is it's the great unknown because every agent and every agency is mm. different. But if you can at least know what the process is, then I think that's that's really helpful. Yeah. Okay. And so for anyone out there who's thinking of buying a property and they're thinking maybe we need a buyer's advocate, where do you find a good one? What should you be looking for? Most of my business is word of mouth. And realistically, when I'm doing something, I ask. I don't put it on open Facebook because you're going to get every man, cat and dog giving you a response and an opinion. But I will ask different friends. You know, if I'm, you know, when we're, searching for a property I'm asking friends okay who knows something about McRae who knows something about this area so with anything like that I'm asking friends and family I always think it's funny when people employ someone who is brand new in the industry and they employ them to sell their biggest asset because they're their nephew or their niece and you think oh god so you should be looking for someone ideally who's had got some years some runs on the board, but it's also familiar with the area that you want to buy in. Have I got that right? Like, and the advocate should know an area as well. Do they specialise in areas the same way that agents do? We do a lot of research. So, you know, the people that I'm helping buy at the moment in Bendigo, it's not just doing the comparables or pricing. It's actually I'm researching the area. I want to know what are the hazards. In Bendigo, it's mine shafts, old mining stuff. But every area has an area of risk. Now, I look into burglary statistics. I look into what are their zones and overlays? You know, can my client do what they want to do with the property? So the advocates, not so much because most of them are are pretty good at knowing what they need to know. So, yeah, but from a selling point, if I'm employing a selling agent, I do want them to be pretty local. But the advantage of having an advocate is that I'm there to make sure that what they say they'll do, they do do, and you're the intermediary. So it's not the agent is not massaging the clients about price. One thing we haven't talked about is the buyer's advocate actually purchasing an auction. I have 
I've been outbidden by bias advocates and they're always the cool, calm, collected person leaning against a tree, reading the newspaper that you don't even realise is about to bid and then they take you out at the end. Well, it's because they don't care. (laughs) They don't have the emotion. You know, you've got, you know, after six auctions, you've fed up with the process, you're emotionally vested, whereas an advocate, yes, we want the property, but we also know at what point. We've done our research. Mm. We know that where it should go. We know where our client walkaway price is. There's no point sort of getting too crazy with your bids until you know it's on the market because, and that's why you'll hear them say, are we on the market? Because up until that point, it's all moot. The agent's just trying to get you up as high as they can. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting little sort of spectacle to be part of an auction and I, I think Victoria is quite unique in Australia in the, the proportion of properties that are sold at auction versus private sale. It's, um... it's really only in the inner and middle ring. You will have some agencies that will only sell by auction, good thing, bad thing. I like to go to auctions. I go to auctions every week. It's, it's research. It's absolutely research. Do it all before the auction. Know your absolute walk away price. If this goes $1 more, it's out of our budget and we need to walk away. And just remember, auctions are just a process. An auction is, is geared to find out who has unconditional, who has the money to pay for the property outright. And then after that, if it's passed in, usually moves into a private treaty yeah it's it's just a process whereas a lot of sellers get really caught up on the actual auction Mm. day but it's just the first part of the process it's just sorting out who can give them an unconditional offer and then after that you might actually get more money after that because someone might be subject to finance but they could bid a lot more they just couldn't bid on the day and in australia just remember that every state has different legislation Every region, every sort of area can be slightly different. Carol, thank you so much for sharing your experience and ideas. So where can our listeners find you if they want to hear more? They can find me at msproperty.com.au and if they want to just book a call, the first one is free. Thank you so much, Carol. Thanks for listening. Show notes for this episode are available at lifeadminlifehacks.com and if you're a fan, Please subscribe and share the love and tell a friend or review us in your podcasting app. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.